When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When Joe Maloney spiked his ex-wife June's drink at their son's fifth birthday party in May 1967, he allegedly did so by adding methyl alcohol to her cocktail. If you drink methyl alcohol, commonly known as wood alcohol, it oxidizes into formaldehyde, which is the main agent in embalming fluid. So, it embalms you from the inside out. Severe cases can narrow your blood vessels, sending you into a coma before shutting down your vital organs. It's a brutal, helpless death. This is what happened to 26-year-old June Fisk while her ex-husband, Joe Maloney, watched her slowly die over nine long days. I'm Pavel Barter from RTE Documentary on One, This is Runaway Joe, Episode 5, The Ripple Effect. This episode contains descriptions of coercive control and domestic violence. Up until now, everyone I've spoken to believed June Fisk was Joe's first wife and that his children with June were his first and only children. I believe that too. But I was wrong. My name is Karen Maloney Keyes. I'm the daughter of Joseph Michael Maloney. I was born in 1957. It was only when researching this series and doing some genealogy work on Ancestry.com that I came in contact with Karen. Twelve years before June Fisk was murdered, 19-year-old Joe Maloney married a girl he'd met in his high school in Rochester, Karen's mother. My mother's name is Joan Howellan. And do you know when they married? February of 55. They were very young, weren't they, when they married? Oh, yeah, very young, very young. I think my mother was 19. He, she had just turned 19. My grandfather didn't want my mom to marry Joe. He didn't even go to her wedding. But my mom went through, I think it was more because she wanted to get out of the house too. Karen is the first family member of Joe Maloney's that we've found. And her stories of him offer new insights into Joe. My dad, apparently when he was born, there was something wrong with him, that something happened to him. And I heard this through my aunt, but she never elaborated about it. 
And I think my my grandmother spoiled him a lot, and they sent him to Ireland. And I don't know how many times he went to Ireland. She also heard a story about an incident with a hitchhiker. When my parents were dating, before they got married, he picked up a, a woman, apparently, a hitchhiker. He had a gun, and she supposedly shot him in the foot. She shot Joe in well, the foot? yeah. It's not clear what went on in that car, but it raised questions around Joe's behaviour towards women. Joan Howland, Karen's mother, fell for his charm, though, and she married him in 1955. But a year later, and pregnant with his first child, Joan was already looking for a way out of her marriage to Joe Maloney. They were together for a very short time, if they married in 55, in 1956, something happened. My mother ended up in a hospital with a broken nose. She fell over a coffee table. While being treated for her injuries in hospital, Karen's mother found a way out of her marriage to Joe Maloney when she met another man. Apparently there was chemistry between my stepfather and my mother. He was an ex-con and he, he just was a very... He was a seller. He, he sweet-talked women. And... and so, Karen's mother left Joe Maloney while pregnant with his child. She filed for divorce and moved to Florida, where Karen was born a few months later. April 5th of 1957. A few weeks after Karen was born, her mother Joan had to return to Rochester because Joan's mother had died. Attending her mother's funeral brought her back within reach of Joe Maloney. My grandmother dies in May, and my mother takes me back to New York. To Rochester. Yeah. And my father sees me, and they have, you know, they rekindle their relationship. And she got pregnant by him. Do you, and mean, you mean Joe? Joe. He didn't know. My mother found out she's pregnant with my sister. Joan lied to Joe Maloney and told him that her second pregnancy was by the man she was living with in Florida, Karen's stepfather, who Karen's mother was about to marry once her divorce from Joe came through. So she calls my stepfather up and said, is that marriage proposal still on? And she's pregnant with Joe's second daughter. But it was hush, hush. Growing up, Karen and her sister were both told that their stepfather was their father, whereas Joe Maloney was in fact their real biological father. My mother and stepfather, they kept, obviously, everything hush-hush, not saying a word, you know, brushing under the cupboard, pretend it didn't happen. Karen was five years old when Joe Maloney married his second wife, June Fisk, in 1962. June was already pregnant with their son Joey when she married Joe, and Joe was quick to control their finances. And I worked the night when I'd go in at 11 o'clock at night and work through the night. Nora Sweeney is a Detective Garda Sergeant with the National Domestic Abuse Unit in Ireland. I'm playing her some of the testimony we've already heard of how Joe Maloney treated his wife, June. Uh, things he was doing to her and the family, uh, a lot of financial problems. 
he would steal money and he would spend like if you just think about yourself if you're able to put your hand in your pocket and you know not be able to pay for something not be able to go where you need everything requires money from food to electricity in your home to petrol in your car to food for your children if you strip that away and you have forced someone to be entirely dependent on someone else, they are feeling incredibly isolated, very limited in what they can and can't do really quickly. I first met June and Joe when I began taking care of their son Joey in 1962. Someone we've not yet heard from in this series is Kathy Blair. Kathy was another close friend of June's. She helped care for her children as June continued to work as a nurse. Kathy gave a witness statement to police at the time of June's murder. She's voiced here by an actor. June was a student nurse living in the dormitory at Genesee Hospital. The couple had no place to keep the child since Joe Maloney did not provide a home. Joe only came to my house once in six months, and when he came, he only talked about himself. He gave no money at all for the support of the child, except once he gave me a $15 check, which proved to be no good. This was all part of a pattern. Other witness statements from June's friends, Wanda and Marcia, detail how Joe Maloney became increasingly controlling and manipulative towards June. He would just do everything to torment her, and he rigged their house with dynamite one time. He didn't want her leaving the house or something. He was, he was a vicious man. He was very irresponsible and made her life miserable. He used to play tricks on her. He would tell her things and they weren't true and try to make her believe things. Nora Sweeney can see how June was now trapped in this cycle of abuse. It's literally been hunted without actually being able to see the hunter. When you're in close proximity with the abuser, victims are really, really attuned. Like June would have been so attuned to kind of change in moods, change in temperature. She would have literally made the lovely dinner that Joe would have liked. She would have literally, you know, engaged in these coping strategies to de-escalate the situation, appease the abuser and stop the abuse. In 1962, June moved in with me for six or seven weeks due to what I understand was Joe entertaining a woman at the house. That's Kathy Blair again. Throughout all of this time, we know that Joe Maloney was unfaithful to June, having multiple sexual partners outside of their marriage. Joseph was not a great believer in monogamy. That's Neil Dunkelberg, Joe's friend from his youth in Rochester, who we met earlier in the series. He believed that his wife should be a great believer in monogamy or his girlfriend should be a great believer, but he wasn't. The rules that apply to the abuser do not apply to anybody else. They have this inner belief system that literally their needs supersede everything. They have this narrative of, well, if I can't have you, no one else will. Uh, you're not allowed to leave this relationship until I say so. Is it possible that Joe Maloney had more children through these extramarital affairs? That's something we hope to resolve later in the series. It's around this time, 1962, 1963, with June now trapped by Joe within their marriage, that Karen, the child from Joe Maloney's first marriage, has her first clear memories of her dad. My earliest recollection was when I was six years old. And 
I think my father, Joe, came to see my mother. I was playing with a dog. I was trying to get a dog in a box, <laughs> a big dog. You know how a six-year-old would do it, you know? But the dog jumped on me. He had his hind legs down, but his front paws on my shoulders. And I was screaming. And both my father, Joe, um, and my mother came downstairs to um, help me, you know, to... So that was my very first recollection. Karen's second memory of her dad is from when she was eight years old. I remember him coming by the kitchen window and looking in the window and saying, boo, you know, as clear as anything. And he walked in the house and he didn't spend time with me or anything. Aside from a few brief encounters, Karen had no interactions with her father, Joe Maloney, and she knew nothing of his new wife and family. In her mind, her stepfather was her real father, and he was not, Karen says, a good one. I was treated really differently. My stepfather was very cruel to me, very cruel, um, mentally and physically. The cruelty in Joe's marriage to June, meanwhile, was deepening as the years progressed, until June began to take back control. In 1964 and 1965, she moved out several times. That's from a newspaper interview with Joan LeBeau. She was a friend of June's and a fellow nurse. June was now pregnant with her second of Joe's children. But he kept hounding her so much, she kept going back. By this time, 1966, June was caring for Joe's four-year-old son and infant daughter and trying her hardest to create a normal existence for the family, as Kathy Blair's testimony recalled. June kept the house and children spotless, was baking and cooking for her husband and children every spare moment she had. In spite of having to work, she also took the children to church every other Sunday when she was off. But by this stage, Joe's coercive control had escalated to physical violence. June's friends began to notice, including Wanda and Kathy. Kathy told me that Joe was ruthless. He was abusive. Yes. In 1966, Joe Maloney beat his wife around the face. He admitted to me after he denied it. I saw her and her face was sore and black and blue. When June was out of the house and Joe was home alone with the children, Joey Jr. and Patty Ann, he ignored them. He pretended as if they weren't there, according to Kathy Blair. Very often, when the babysitter would not arrive while June was working, June would call me and ask me to sit. I would arrive. The children would still be in bed at noon. Joe would tell me he didn't allow the boy downstairs and made them stay in bed. He would refer to them as her kids. Looking back now, Joe was beginning to demonstrate psychopathic behaviour. I'm not surprised at just, you know, the children being in bed. You know, he would not see his role in, you know, being a parent. That's someone else's. If it's not June's, it's, well, it's the babysitter. If it's not one babysitter, well, let's go and get another one. So there isn't this whole, you know, that didn't fit with whatever image he had of himself. There is no way that you could be a domestic abuser and be a good parent. Because when you look at abusers, they're so narcissistic, you know, um, they have this ideology that literally their needs supersede everything. By early 1967, June was at breaking point. Kathy Blair explains what happened next. 
In January, Joe went to Ireland. He left June with no money at all. But Joe had plenty of money, inherited from his recently deceased parents, which he had spent on extended trips to Ireland and a flash red Ford Mustang. It was all becoming too much for June, according to her friend, Kathy. In March of 1967, June and her children came to live with me. They lived with me for one month. Joe had returned from Ireland and was acting strangely, and he gave no money for support of his children. Detective Sergeant Laura Sweeney understands what it took for June to finally leave this relationship. 1960s, you know, single woman saying, right, I'm going to try to find accommodation on my own, look after my children on my own, then yes, you would have to say, wow, how tenacious, how tenacious of her. But when you put in the backdrop of domestic abuse and what she lived with and endured, that she was able to find and identify a pathway out of that abuse, that's, you know, that's phenomenal. Not long after she left him, Joe attacked June with a knife, stabbing at her through the fabric rooftop of her convertible car, an action which terrified her. He tried to attack her with a knife. He, he's, he's a very bad man. It was now weeks away from June's murder, and the signs were increasingly ominous. Joe began to openly tell people that he was going to kill June. June's friend Kathy told police about an incident just six days before June was fatally poisoned at her son's fifth birthday party. On May 21st, I was a passenger in Joe Maloney's car, and I was aware June and Joe had separated. While I was a passenger in the car, Joe asked me if June would come back. I said I didn't know. At one point in our conversation, Joe said he would do away with June and that they would not be able to pin it on him. Also stated to me, if she doesn't come back, I will make it so nobody else will want her. This apparent confession of intent is not unusual when it comes to domestic abusers. Most domestic homicides will occur in the first year of um, a person having left their an abusive relationship. In a lot of cases, you will have abusers literally verbalise, they will send a text, they will literally say how they are going to kill someone. Like we, you know, often speak to colleagues and say, if there's a threat to kill and it specifies a particular form, um, you know, of of killing, that is actually what the abuser will realise. And choosing to kill your wife at your son's birthday party. What does that tell us about Joe? I would think the fact that actually it was Joe's son's birthday was irrelevant. It was that an opportunity presented itself. And that was the more dominant consideration. That birthday party presented an opportunity. That level of psychopathy is unimaginable to most of us, and definitely to a 10-year-old, which was Karen's age, Joe Maloney's firstborn child, when her father was charged with murdering June. But remember, Karen still didn't know that Joe was her father. That was until a childhood accident finally revealed the truth. I rode my cousin's bike down a hill and hit a tree and had a huge concussion and I ended up in the hospital. I'm sitting in the hospital and my aunt and the doctor outside my room and I kept hearing Maloney, Firth, Maloney, Firth. So my aunt comes in and asks me, what's, my, what's your name? She, I said, Karen Firth. Well, my mom 
She has to tell me who I really am. I can remember sitting on a picnic table, and she tells the story of what happened. Karen's mother told her that her stepdad was not her father and that Joe Maloney was, in fact, her real dad. Of course, here at 10 years old, I'm just elated, elated that I have a a father. All Karen wanted now was to be with her dad, Joe Maloney, to hug him tight. But now that Joe had been charged with first-degree murder, was incarcerated, escaped and had gone on the run, the chances of Karen ever seeing him again were very, very slim. I used to daydream. My mom knew. My, you know, mothers know their children. If they're, you know, um, and she knew that I used to dream. I used to cry at night. And, you know, my stepfather would send me to bed early for no reason at all. And I would just lay there and cry and cry. Karen wasn't the only person whose life was damaged by Joe Maloney's behaviour. In Rochester, June's family were devastated by her murder and the effect of it was to ripple through their lives for years to come. My father and my mother are Dale and Gladys Fisk, so June would have been my aunt. This is Amy Emmerich. June Maloney's niece. She's lived her entire life in the shadow of June's murder. Her late father, Dale, was June's brother. And what did he tell you about June, about his sister? The only thing I really knew was that she was a nurse. And I didn't know a lot about June because I was a baby. You know, as time passed, they didn't really talk about June that much to me because I was so young. Did he ever say what she was like as a person? Well, of course, as a kind, loving person. Did you have the feeling that they were trying to protect you now, looking back on it? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a hard thing for someone to hear that their aunt was murdered. It's probably something they wanted to put behind them as well. It was probably... It was hard for them because they were, um, my parents were just engaged um, and they were at Joe and June's home like for a little party because they had gotten engaged. And apparently that was the evening that he poisoned her drink. You know, even though your dad may not have talked about it a lot, how do you think nevertheless that it affected him? He was always really a quiet person. I mean, I can only guess how terrible it was losing his sister. They did keep a lot of that from me. So I was young going through those years, so I didn't notice anything in particular. When June was murdered, her family lost June forever. But they also lost her two children, Joey Jr. and Patty Ann because Joe Maloney, as their father, was also their legal guardian. June's children were taken into care by the state after he went on the run and eventually disappeared into the system. Joe Maloney destroyed their entire family unit. All I know is that they were adopted. Um, I don't know who adopted them. Do you think that Joe Maloney took something from you as well? 
He took away family members. Yeah. He robbed me of that time with my aunt. And he robbed me of meeting my cousins or having, having more family. He took away three family members from me. Not just June, but so, yes. Amy didn't find out what happened to her Aunt June until many years later. But Karen, Maloney's first-born child, dreamt about a fairy tale life with her dad until she found out what he did. And Karen, when did you find out about your dad and what he did? When I was 16. Karen had a difficult childhood. She thought that if she could find her real father, Joe Maloney, that everything would be fine. That feeling was supercharged because of her violent stepfather, whom she ran away from on one occasion. I was so scared that, you know, I knew that I couldn't live like this anymore. And I ran away one day, and um, I didn't know where to go. And... So I stayed out all day long, and I then thought, well, i got to go back home. It's getting dark. It's getting, um, you know, I, I even lost one of my shoes in the river. I threw the other one away, too, in the river. So I went out to the road, and there was cars going by, and I saw a police car, and I waved him down, and I said, is anybody looking for me? And, of course, he said yes when he looked my name up. So, with glee, my stepfather shows up at the police station with my mother, and we go home. My mother dug out newspaper clippings of my father to tell me that my father would never be coming back, and this is what he did. That was awful. That was the worst thing in my entire life. My whole world crashed. Crashed like awful. Karen left home and moved in with foster parents. Two years later, at the age of 18, she went in search of Joe Maloney's only surviving direct family member, his brother, Jim. When I was 18 years old, obviously I was in a foster home at the time, and I called every James Maloney in Rochester, New York. So there was a couple of Jim Maloney's that didn't answer. So I finally um, asked my mother what uh, my uncle's middle name was, and she told me, James Thomas. And I called, and a woman answered, and I asked her, you know, is your husband Jim Maloney? Yes. Does he have a brother named Joe? She was quiet, and she said yes. And I said, I'm his daughter. And we talked, and later on that night, my uncle called me. And within, oh, 10 days, I was in Rochester, New York. I took a bus to New York. And when I got there, they were waiting for me. And my uncle just hugged me like it was, he just didn't want to let go. He said I looked like my grandmother. Winifred. Yeah, yeah. 
And it was really hard for him, really hard for him that his brother did this. It was hard for the whole Maloney family. By now, both of Joe Maloney's parents were dead. So his brother Jim was the closest Karen was ever going to get to her father. I just basked in his presence because that was the closest thing to my dad. For four days, we did a lot. We did a lot together. I mean, as a family and reunions, I I met his other cousin, and it was just joyous, and then I had to go. That was in 1975. Karen and Jim Maloney stayed in touch. Jim even attended Karen's high school graduation. But she never heard from Joe. And that's how her life has been for the last 50 or more years, waiting and hoping to find out what happened to her father, Joe Maloney. I used to daydream that my dad would come back. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm 66 years old almost, and I'm still wanting to see my dad. I'm sorry. We hope to help Karen finally find out what happened to her father. And your help is beginning to edge us closer. We've got some tips in from our listeners, and putting those together with all of our own research over the last 18 months, we're continuing to uncover new information that the FBI and other authorities have never been aware of in their search for Joe Maloney. And that's where we're going in episode six closing the net. The guards, anyway, brought my dad into the office and he showed him this FBI file and in here was O'Shea being Joe Maloney. Quite a shock. As Runaway Joe is a live investigation, if you have any knowledge of Joseph Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, please contact us immediately and in confidence via documentaries at rte.ie. Runaway Joe is written, reported and produced by me, Pavel Barter and Tim Desmond. Production assistance from Nicolene Greer. Music is by Martin Kluzak and Tomasz Burrow. The sound engineer is Pater Carney and the executive producer for RTE Documentary on One is Liam O'Brien. If you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please reach out to rte.ie forward slash helplines, where you'll find contacts for a variety of support networks around abuse and domestic violence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.